Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening uh, to the book of Genesis, and we're turning to Genesis chapter 49. Over the years, we have been uh, taking the book of Genesis in chunks, and uh, recently we have taken the chunks uh, uh, focusing on the life of Jacob uh, together. but um, this evening we want to bring to a close our, our study on the life of Jacob. Uh, we could continue to follow the life of Jacob as it's told uh, through the eyes or through the focus on his son Joseph. Uh, but we want to zero in here on uh, the words of Jacob at the end of his life in Genesis 49. Genesis chapter 49, and this is found on page 42 in the Church Bibles. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulon shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forest labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. 
Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe that lets loose, that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by the spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field uh, from Ephron the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. There is uh, a time period in Christian history uh, where we talk about a group of Christians that were called the Puritans. Uh, The Puritans uh, were a people who were marked by uh, a biblical fidelity. They had a passion uh, for the word of God having uh, its effect on the totality of one's life. The Puritans uh, were a people uh, that lived in the 16th and the 17th century in Britain. Uh, But they were people that wanted to make all of life devoted to the glory of God. One Puritan during this time period in in history uh, by the name of Edmund uh, Barker once said that every Christian has two jobs, to live well and to die well. Every Christian has two jobs, to live well and to die well. What does it mean to die well? What did Barker mean when he said that we are to die well? We hear that language all the time today in our society. Uh, It's where we get the word euthanasia. Euthanasia simply means good death. Oftentimes when people talk about euthanasia, They're thinking about a good death in terms of escaping suffering, escaping the pain associated from death, and uh, removing oneself 
uh, from that, that state of pain. But to think about a good death simply as escaping from pain uh, really misses something of the weightiness, the significance, we could say, of what is happening in death. In death, there is something of great meaning that is happening. Because it brings about a real change. It marks the end of our earthly pilgrimage. It marks the end of our earthly existence. It it marks the end of our earthly life. But more than that, it brings with it a real separation. It brings with it real sorrow. And so to talk about a good death strictly in in terms of pain or of suffering is missing out that there's a lot more happening through the process of death. That death has a way of calling to attention what it is that we are living for. Death has a way of calling attention to what is is it that weighs upon us, what is important. And so if we're going to die well, we have to know what we are living for. We have to live well. But this evening, as we are coming to look at uh, the life of Jacob, we're coming really to look at what we might say is Jacob's finest hour. We looked last time about one of Jacob's brighter moments, one of those moments where he exhorted his children that we're going to Bethel, we're going to worship the God who has been with me wherever I have gone. It is time to purify yourselves, to change your garments, and to devote ourselves to God. Put away the idols. This was Jacob emerging as the leader that he was supposed to be. But this evening we are looking at Jacob perhaps at his best. Because this evening Jacob is dying well. And he is dying well as he in his final words is directing his family about the things that are soon to take place. The things that have yet to take place. And this evening uh, we then want to look at because God's gracious promises extend beyond our earthly life. We are to look forward in hope. Dying well, it it must mean more than simply being described with reference to pain. There's one person uh, who wrote a book by that title, Dying Well. And when they wrote that book, uh, their name was Ira Bjork. And what the author was trying to highlight is, is that more must be going on in order to have a good death. A good death will bring with it a sense of a sense of reflection, a sense of appreciation for what life is. And so the author was saying that a good death entails oftentimes saying, I love you. That it will express an appreciation for the life that was shared with other people. That a good death is not only marked by saying, I love you, but it is also by, marked by uh, an, an appreciation uh, of other people. Thank you for what you have done for me. Thank you for the love that you have shown to me. Thirdly, it is marked by a desire for closure. Please forgive me. Rather than dying with open <coughs> wounds, it desires restoration. It desires to bring closure to life. To be able to close well says, please forgive me for the way that I have offended you. And then finally, 
I forgive you. Rather than taking resentment and anger and bitterness to the grave, one wants to heal the other. One wants to set the other one free from the guilt and the pains that they have themselves committed. And so this author was trying to get at something that if we're going to die well, there must be something that allows us to bring closure to life. And this author was trying to say the closure is, is part of understanding the importance of relationships. It involves saying thank you. It involves saying I love you. It involves saying please forgive me. It involves saying I forgive you. But if we're going to die well, it's going to mean not only acknowledging the relationships of this life, but it's ultimately going to involve looking to God in our dying hours. And that's what we see Jacob doing here. And this evening we want to look at this chapter and we want to think about two things. We want to think about what Jacob says. And then secondly, we want to think about what Jacob showed. What did Jacob say? And then what did Jacob command his sons? Well, first, what did Jacob say? Notice in the opening verses here, uh, Jacob called his sons and he said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall soon happen uh, to you in the days to come. And Jacob as a patriarch uh, has been given discernment about things that will soon take place or things that will later take place in history. God has granted him uh, an outlook onto human history as if he is on the top of a mountain and he can see uh, a certain distance ahead, what is coming, uh, what the terrain looks like, what the territory looks like. Jacob is now disclosing prophetically uh, what God has made known to him. And so he is now to declare that uh, to his sons. But notice in verse 2 that two times Jacob says, assemble and listen. Listen uh, to your father. You young people, Maybe sometimes you'll hear your parents saying, listen. Maybe you're sitting in church and your mom or your dad will nudge you and say, it's time to listen. Or maybe you're around the table and someone's reading from the scriptures and your mom or your dad says, now it's time to listen. Or maybe they're telling you something and you say to yourself, I've heard this before. You've told me that before. And maybe you have heard it before. But when your parents say something to you over and over again, when they remind you of something, they're stressing to you, this is important. Jacob here is talking to his adult children, and he is stressing to them something that is important. It is important that they live in light of God's word. Jacob is telling them things that they need to live uh, recognizing and so he calls his sons together and he is going to declare to them the things that will take place in the days to come. And you notice that here he speaks to all of his sons because God's purposes include all of them. God's purposes will be worked out throughout the, pe the people of God and they all need to know of what God's purposes entail. They are to live in light of God's unfolding plan. And so he begins to one by one single them out. And you notice here that as he speaks to his sons, he not only speaks to his sons, but he picks out certain traits in his sons. And then he begins to see a pattern emerging through the generations. 
that what he sees in them will have a way of repeating itself and becoming characteristic even of the tribe. That's true even in the first example of Reuben. Reuben, the first child of Jacob, his oldest, the one who should be given preeminence, he thinks. And yet he says to Reuben, you will not be given preeminence. You're as unstable as water, as uncontrollable as water. You don't want to be directed or controlled, but rather you slip and go your own way. Reuben was the one who took of his father's concubines. He was the one who in that act was most likely asserting his dominance in the family. Something that was not only wrong, but something that was also foolish. But more than that, as you read through the book of Genesis, you find that whenever Reuben asserts himself, his efforts always fall short. And here, Jacob highlights that about Reuben. You will not be granted preeminence. And as you trace out the tribe of Reuben in history, you find that the tribe of Reuben becomes, uh, fades into the distance and it becomes of little significance in Israel's history. Reuben and the tribe of Reuben will produce no leaders. They will not be granted preeminence. Jacob turns to his other, two other sons, Simeon and Levi. And you remember, these are the sons who went against the son of, sons of Shechem, who went and created a war. And still Jacob distances himself from their violence, from their wickedness. And he uh, tells them that they will be divided uh, and scattered in Israel. Cursed be their anger. A judgment is pronounced on their tribes. But you notice here that uh, this actually works itself out in history. Simeon would become a small tribe according to a census that is done in the book of Numbers. But more than that, that Simeon would actually be scattered because the land where Simeon would ultimately inherit would be a land that actually would be swallowed up by the tribe of Judah. That Simeon would be engulfed into another tribe. They were scattered as a result. Levi also would be scattered as a tribe. But their judgment on the tribe of Levi, that, that judgment would ultimately be turned into a blessing. Because later in history, you remember that it was the Levites who were zealous for the Lord's name. And they were, as a result, in defending the Lord's honor, they were granted the role of being priests in the priestly service in the tabernacle. And as a result, the Levites didn't inherit any uh, earthly inheritance but rather they were scattered throughout Israel to do what? To give God's instruction to the people of Israel. And so while Jacob here pronounces a judgment on the Levites, you will be scattered. That judgment ultimately becomes a blessing because through their scattering, the people of God would be instructed. And so here Jacob is declaring to them, things that would be true uh, of these tribes. He goes on and he mentions uh, many of the tribes, Zebulon, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Benjamin. He describes these tribes. He describes them as vipers, wolves, does, and donkeys. Uh, he singles out Issachar as a tribe that found a comfortable resting place, but their blessing implies that there was a cost 
to their own comfort because they became uh, forced servants at forced labor. In other words, did the tribe of Issachar realize that they gave up too much in order to live a comfortable life? Jacob then addresses each of his sons to show them their part in the purposes of God. And so while they each live distinct, they're to be aware of what binds them together. But as Jacob talks here to his sons, as he says, listen to this, because this is important. He talks to them about what will be true of their tribes down through history. He begins to draw his attention to two the tribe of Joseph, and the tribe of Judah. That by far the most description is given to these two. Five times to Joseph, the word blessing is directed. He will enjoy greater blessings than the patriarchs. And from Joseph, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh would enjoy their choice in the promised land. Those blessings would be temporal but they were meant to communicate a foretaste of the spiritual blessings that Joseph uh, and his family uh, would enjoy, a double portion, as it were. But in verses 8 through 11, uh, Jacob's speech focuses on Judah, and namely on the exaltation of Judah. You can see how Judah is exalted above his brothers in four ways. Judah is exalted because he will be praised by the other tribes. Judah is exalted because he'll be victorious. Judah is exalted because he'll be preeminent amongst the tribes. And he will be exalted because he will strike fear in the eyes of his enemies. Judah's strength is compared with a lion. And when we think of a lion today, we think of, we think of a kingdom. We think of a monarchy. And the same idea is associated with a lion even in the time of Scripture. That's even made explicit there in verse 10 because it says the scepter, that staff, that kingly staff that is attributed with a throne. It says the scepter will not depart from Judah until tribute comes to him. Or as some translations would say, until Shiloh comes. Now those might sound like very different translations, but the trick is is that what makes those two translations different is the unique spelling of the word here in this verse. It's the only time it's used like this in scripture. And so it's not clear for translators if this is talking about a name, Shiloh, or if this is talking about a tribute that comes to him. But either way, however you want to translate it, it's understood by all that this is talking about an expected ruler that will come from the tribe of Judah. It is talking about a future king. But more than that, it's talking about a future king whose kingdom endures. That his kingdom will be one that is established. In fact, we can push even further than this because Jewish tradition has long held that this prophecy is talking about a personal Messiah. The Jerusalem Targum, which was completed between the 1st and the 6th century AD, translates this as following, until that time that King Messiah shall come. And so this has been long understood as a description of the coming 
Messiah or the coming king who is Messiah. This, this king then uh, is referring to a future ruler from the tribe of Judah. But further notice what, how this uh, is described. Jacob is talking about Judah and in verses 10 and following he mentions two things in particular. The obedience and the prosperity. In verse 10, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He doesn't say the obedience of the sons of Jacob. He doesn't simply say the obedience of the offspring of Abraham. He says the obedience of the peoples. That word peoples is the word nations. What Jacob is describing here as he's calling his sons together and says, listen to this. Listen. From from Judah's line will emerge a ruler. That his kingdom will not depart. It will extend. And his kingdom will be characterized by two things. It'll be characterized by a worldwide dominion. It'll be characterized by bringing the nations into obedience. This will be a global response. Peoples from every corner of the world will come and give homage. They will give tribute. They will give themselves in loyalty to this king. They will submit in obedience to this king. This is the one that we are to look to. The second thing that Jacob describes about this coming ruler is not just the obedience that will come to him, but the abundant prosperity. He gives three pictures in verses uh, 11 and following uh, to describe this prosperity. He says, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Let me ask you, when would you ever tie your donkey to a vine? The answer is never, because that donkey is going to eat and destroy that vine. The only time you would tie your donkey to a vine is if you had no concern about getting the harvest from that vine, because there is such abundance of it. There is such a prosperity of wine that you're not concerned about a shortage of wine. But here it says the marking of this king will be marked with such abundance that the donkey will be tied to the vine. That he goes on, he says he has washed his garments in wine. There will be such abundance that like water, it will be just prevalent and people will use it even for washing. That he goes on and he says his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Again, this idea of prosperity leads to health with dark eyes and with white teeth. And so here, as we come to the end of Genesis, we're starting to see this building development of God's purposes. When sin entered the world, God gave the first promise of good news. What was that? It was that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. God would provide a savior. The woman would bear a child, and that child would be triumphant over the evil one. He would destroy the works of the devil. He would crush his head. That promise developed further because it wasn't just some child, but it would be the offspring of Abraham that God's blessing would come out to the nations. 
But now at the end of Genesis, it becomes even more refined because that child that will be born of a woman who will come from the line of Abraham is also described as coming from the line of Judah. He will be a king. His kingdom will be one that endures, one that brings the obedience of the nations and one that brings abundance and prosperity and blessing. And so Jacob is saying, listen, this is the purposes of God. This is the what we are to look to, that he will be Judah. Why was Judah named Judah? Because his birth brought forth praise. There will emerge from the line of Judah a true Judah, one who will bring forth the praise of people because he will bring victory and deliverance over sin. And so we see this path of how sin is going to be dealt with. The path towards blessing is in a king who would be stronger than the curse of sin. You will recognize uh, him because he will come from the line of Judah, that he will bring obedience, a universal response, and that he will bring a time of great blessing. Then you turn to your New Testament and you turn to the ministry of Jesus. And what is the first sign that Jesus does? It's the changing of water into wine. And you begin to realize there was a reason why Jesus did that. The changing of water into wine is a sign of joy. The inbreaking of God's kingdom, a time that brings abundance and prosperity. That just as the Psalms teach us that wine is a gift from God, it gladdens the heart. Jesus communicated to people that he is the one who has come to bring abundance and prosperity, the blessing of God. That his purpose was to bring blessing in the place of curse. That he came to bring God's favor to those who were living under the curse of sin. That he came to conquer death and to bring life. Jesus was intentional about his miracles. And so just as Jacob is describing this coming ruler with the imagery of wine, Jesus uses wine to signal his arrival. Where is this promised king? And Jesus does this miracle saying the abundance of God's blessing has come, that he is the promised king. But he brings that blessing in a most remarkable and shocking way. It's by dying in the place of sinners. It says in Revelation 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, of the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God and they shall reign on the earth. How did Jacob die well? Jacob died well because he pointed people to what mattered most the purposes of God. He spoke to his kids about what he was trusting in. He spoke to them about God's purposes. Just as they did at Bethel, so Jacob now at the end of his life was directing his children to God. The way to die well is to turn to God, who is sovereign over life and death. It is to look to God 
to prevail his purposes and to overcome death itself. That to die well is not simply accepting that, our, that we are mortal, but to die well is also to hope in the God who is able to bring life again. Jacob here is dying well because he is pointing people to the purposes of God that go beyond his life. So Jacob spoke to his children, but then secondly, what did he show them? It tells us in verses 29 and following that he commanded his sons uh, that he was to be gathered together and buried in the field of Ephron the Hittite, not in the land of Egypt. It tells us two things. Jacob was not interested in a state-funded funeral from Egypt. Jacob wasn't interested in all the pomp and circumstance and the glory that would come from being Joseph's father. Jacob did not want to simply be buried in Egypt. He wanted them to go through all the hassle of taking him back to Canaan. Why? Because he wanted it clear with whom he associated with, where his identity lied. Bury me where my grandfather and my grandmother are, where my father and where my mother are, and where my wife Leah is. That he wants to be buried with his people. But more than that, this command of Jacob to his sons communicates not just where he associates, it communicates his hope. That Jacob is looking beyond his own life to the promises of God. At this point, it's just a plot of land. But the promise was is that they would inherit the land of Canaan. God's blessings would be realized. And Jacob is making it clear that that's what he's trusting in. God will do what he has said. And we are to look to the God of all promises for blessing in life and in death. And so Jacob is making it clear to his sons where he lies, where he stands. And he is impressing on his sons you have to decide whether you believe in those promises yourself. You have to decide if you are trusting in God to fulfill his promises that will extend beyond your life. Because Jacob is able to speak about things to come. Those purposes go beyond 70 years. They go beyond 100 years. God's purposes are from beginning to end, from eternity to eternity. And it is the purpose of God to show his glory. So we are to live by trusting in the promises of God. We read in Romans earlier, it says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Dying well means dying with hope. Dying well means looking to God, to his purposes. Dying well means communicating to others where they can look to for hope, even as they face mortality as well. Dying well is marked by trusting in God's promises. 
it is marked by a hope in the Messiah who conquers the enemy of death and will bring about the redemption of our bodies. As you step back and you think about the life of Jacob, Jacob's life is actually quite messy. There's a lot more low moments in Jacob's life than high moments. But that's okay. Because Jacob's life ends well. Through all the mess, Jacob is looking to his God. The God who has been with him wherever he has gone. And now, as Jacob is going to face death, he's trusting that God is able to bring life again. He is trusting in a redeemer, a king whose purpose is to bless the nations, to bring in subjection all things, as we were looking at this morning, to reconcile all things in himself. That hope was well-placed. Are we living well, and are we prepared to die well? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about Jacob, uh, that we would see all his failings, his shortcomings, and to realize his humanity, to recognize his faults. But we pray, Lord, as well, that we would admire how he could die well, how he could speak about the purposes of God, and point to the Redeemer that would come to bring the obedience of the nations and to bring prosperity and blessing in abundance. Lord, we're thankful for the coming of the Lord Jesus, who brings the blessings of God, the one who conquers the grave, the one who reconciles sinners and makes peace by the blood of his cross. And we pray, Lord, that we would trust in him, that we might be able to live in well, and that we might trust in him that we might be able to die well as well. Go before us in Jesus' name. Amen.